Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from John chapter 12, verse 20 through 23. Algunos griegos que habían ido a Jerusalén para celebrar la Pascua le hicieron una visita a Felipe, que era de Bethsaida de Galilea. Le dijeron, Señor, queremos conocer a Jesús. Felipe se lo comentó a Andrés y juntos fueron a preguntarle a Jesús. Jesús respondió, ya ha llegado el momento para que el Hijo del Hombre entre en su gloria. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Daniel, and thank you, Betty. Uh, as we announced a couple of months ago, they are, they are off and running with a new ministry here. You'll Notice that Luzi Vida has finally been able to move into their new building down on 10th Street, and uh, we are very glad to still have uh, good ministry here. So thank you, Pastor Daniel. We are uh, very fortunate to have you and your family to help us to do all of this. We're going to do the hard work of theology today. Now, I, yes, every week I hope that we are at some level doing the hard work of theology, but I want to announce it to you today. I want to say to you that it's necessary that we do the hard work of theology today. Otherwise, what you have are Christians who believe but are, are unreflective. They don't reflect on what it is that they believe and can be kind of blown one way or the other. For, for example, what in the world happens here in this cross? I mean, there are other questions that we will deal with today, hopefully in a faithful sort of way, theologically. Here, here's another question. Can people change? I mean, I've had that question myself even recently I, with people that I love deeply and dearly seem stuck, stuck. Can people change? Can a person change is what I should have said, but I also mean the other. Can people change? I mean, we continue to watch the news, unless you opt out of the news, and some people do. <laughs> Can people change? Can there be any sort of substantive change? Now, I'm not talking about whether or not they can finally agree in Washington, D.C. I'm talking about can we get to the place where we aren't acting in violent sorts of ways where whole other people groups are concerned? Can we stop doing those kinds of things? Man, my Christian hope is yes. My Christian hope is that we have thought in a faithful, theological sort of way about what happens on the cross and in the resurrection. Hopefully we can think about the cross and the resurrection in ways that actually give us the resources necessary to stop killing Asian Americans, amen? to stop killing people who are of different races and creeds and colors, to stop being so exclusive, so violently exclusive that people's lives are in danger. My hope is that the people of God can think theologically and faithfully enough about the cross and about the resurrection to give us the resources to lead the way as it has to do with not killing people. 
this concern that perhaps people are stuck and can't uh, really change is not new. I mean, maybe you have felt it individually. There are some great stories here in the sanctuary, and I, and I hope to explore some of these stories, and maybe we can facilitate ways to get some of these people up front to tell you, yep, I was that person. I was stuck, stuck. But I was able to grow and move. I was rescued. But even somebody like David, if, if you were to take your Bibles and open it to Psalm 51, you would read there probably at least, most of our Bibles will say, this is the Psalm of David. This is the same King David who actually killed Uriah and then committed adultery with, with Bathsheba, though not necessarily in that order. This is the song they say about Psalm 51. This is the song that he sang right out loud and wondered, wondered if a person could change, wondered if he could change. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Listen to this. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. Can you hear the hopelessness in it? The despair. Some of you not only hear it, you remember it. You remember saying something similar. Perhaps you remember thinking it about that other person who seems hopelessly lost. Verse six, you desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, a cleansing ritual, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Here's what I need, Lord. I need you to create in me a clean heart and put a new and right spirit within me. If I'm going to be salvageable, says David, it's going to have more to do with you than it's going to have to do with me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Can a person change? Can a person change or, or here we're going to get into the theology part, are we saying, I, I really can't change, I need God to do something so that I will finally be acceptable. I, I need God to do something to Jesus Cover me with, you ever heard this phrase, cover me with blood? Because I can't change, said the shooter this week. I can't change. I had to eliminate the temptations, said the shooter this week, who, by the way, was a preacher's son. Frightening as that is. Me too. Still frightening. <laughs> Very involved in his church. Okay, I'm ready for an amen. I'm just going to give you a head of time. Bad theology. Oh, wow, not nearly as good as couldn't change, had to eliminate the temptations because somehow he couldn't change. But it's not just persons, individual persons, it's, it's whole people groups, right? I mean, long after David's reign, long after the writing, let's say, of Psalm 51, the prophet Jeremiah would give voice to the voice of God 
who mourns out loud that the people, God's people, Israel, had wasted their God-given opportunities. And they were failing to live up to their calling, see Genesis 12, that you'd be a blessing to all people. Failing to live up to their calling to be the people of God, organized to embody the nature and very presence of God in the hopes of reaching all the people. So, so says God in Jeremiah 31, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The Exodus story, right? Out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, God says, though I was their husband. Hear the heartache. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Here it is again. I will put my laws not on tablets. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The law is written on tablets meant to shape the people of God to be the people of God had not resulted in transformation such that the people could actually be the people of God. God says, okay, we're going to move from writing these things on tablets that we will set in front of you to writing them on your hearts, where you not just feel things, but where you assess things, where you discern the center of your being. I'm going to write it on your hearts. But how? Verse 34, listen to God ache out loud for what he wants, for what God wants to happen. No longer shall they teach one another or say to one another, you should know the Lord, because they all will know me. From the least to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. I've caught myself wondering are we, are we stuck as a society? Are we stuck? Can a group of people change its posture toward another group of people? And here's the worst part for me, and I'm, and I'm sorry ahead of time. Boy, some of you got big mad at me last, not some of you. There was people out there in Facebook world that got big mad at me over what we said last week about uh, our complicity as Christians in some of these ugly systems. Big mad, big mad. But I'm gonna say it again. I think what hurts me most is when Christianity is either under-described, when the impact of Christianity is underappreciated, and when things are done that are completely antithetical to the face of God we see in Christ, completely antithetical, and yet we use Christian words and phrases to justify it somehow, to sort of explain it. But can that change, John? Can that change? Are we as evangelicals stuck? Are we as a denomination stuck? And here's the harsh answer. The answer is maybe. Maybe. Might be. Might be stuck. I mean, if we continue to ignore this and what this means, if we continue to demonstrate our inability to think faithfully and theologically about this, 
then yeah, we're probably stuck. And yes, I am saying this about people groups, but I'm also saying about persons, and so there is a chance that I'm referring to you or to me at some level. If you and I lack the willingness or the capacity, the tenacity necessary to think faithfully about this, then yeah, you might be stuck. Because you will have opted out of the resources for change and transformation. Let me say it again to kind of set a little bit of a theological backdrop before we get into the meat of this John 12 text. I want to ask you, what do you see when you see a cross? Or perhaps do you even see it anymore? Do we see so many crosses? Have we so made jewelry out of the cross that we don't actually see it, that it doesn't communicate to us anymore? Like, what do we see when we look at the cross? Here, here's something, I, I hope you aren't seeing this. This is how mad God gets at sin. God demands some sort of payment. I, I hope that is not what you're seeing because I want you to just you know, follow me here. Now think with me. Try to engage your theological mind. So think with me here. God gets so mad, ready? That God has to exact payment from God's son. The blood then covers the people. Then finally God can think differently about the person and the people. See that? I don't want you to think that. because here, There's a lot assumed in there. Something about God must change because I somehow can't. Though I'm made in God's image, there's something about me that can't change. And so I need God to change. And I, will need, I need God to change God's assessment of me, how God sees me how God will judge me, and the, reason, the only reason I have hope then is because God will take this blood that belongs to somebody else and just douse me in it so God doesn't see me, he sees the blood, and I'm covered because I can't change, I need God to. I would submit that's not how Jesus understands the cross. So here, here's the, the flip that I want you to see that will serve as the backdrop, not Evidence of how angry God gets. Some of you know it's coming already. But this, this is the tangible evidence of how far God will go to make this point that God loves you and that point will never change. But because that point will never change, because God is the hound of heaven <laughs> that seeks us out in love and will not give up on us, God's not giving up on us must be evidence then that God sees potential in us to change. There is something about God that doesn't change so that we can. Doing okay? Well, I'm going ahead anyway. Thanks, buddy. It's one of those stories I want to hear. So here we are in John chapter 12. Though we will talk about the triumphal entry next week, the triumphal entry has already happened in chapter 12 in John by the time we get to these verses. And it is already the case that the Pharisees are upset at Jesus for a variety of reasons. 
some of which are theological, but some are actually political in nature. They have already lamented in the prior chapter, in the prior passage, oh man, everybody's going to see him, he's going to cause this big ruckus, and when he causes this big ruckus, then Rome's going to take a look at us and say, man, we don't want to, we don't want to mess with this, and they had some pretty good reasons to think that, because that is in fact what Rome thought, and that is in fact what Rome would act on eventually. So the Pharisees are saying, this guy who has bad theology, or so they said, is going to get us in trouble, and you know what? They're right. They even say, look, the whole world is going to him. Now, that's loaded language. You may not know it, but that is loaded language. The whole world is going to him. The whole world is going to him. And so you hear in the voice and in the words of the Pharisees the hope of the world, that the whole world would go to this Jesus. A Messiah, but a Messiah, unlike any Messiah we thought would come along. A Messiah who defies societies, believing societies, beliefs and predictions as to what a Messiah would be. Now, watch what happens here. Verse 20, among those who went up to worship at the festival, and this is Passover again, were some Greeks. Now, these were probably people who at least had an interest in Jewish Passover. Perhaps they'd already been converted. Either way, everybody had gathered in Jerusalem for this Passover ritual. And having heard about Jesus, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and I'm not sure what we were expecting Jesus to say. Maybe something like, well, sure, have him come to my baptism class, and we'll just, we'll just get them all kind of lined up, and I'd love to meet him. I'll sign a few things for him if they want. But what Jesus says, almost seemingly ignoring the words he just heard, Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. These are huge words, chock full of meaning. Jesus is here leaning into his role as a correction to Israel's failures. This is the man who begins the new Israel. The people of God have not been able to live up to their calling, but the person of God will live up to that same calling, to be a light for all people, to be a blessing to all people, and now all people in the form of the Greeks have come to Jesus, and something in there caused Jesus to say, it's time. It's time. And then he says this. Very truly, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In the tradition, the Gospel of John, words mean things, darkness, light. Fruit here means us, actually. In other words, Jesus is saying this. The death part is coming, and I know it's coming, but because of this death part that's coming, there will be a whole gathering of people who will align themselves with the death and all that the death means, and they will be the new Israel that can put skin and flesh on what it means to be the person and now the people of God. 
Jesus seems to understand here. It's fascinating to me. Jesus seems to understand the implications of his death. Do we? I mean, have you thought, again, have you thought, have you reflected on the meaning of the cross? Well, the, the cross must be front and center. Yeah, actually, yes, and, and we, we moved it front and center today, and we probably should have done it a long time ago because thinking faithfully and thinking theologically, I need to always account for where this cross is or else I will run into it and fall down, right? But actually, I need to know where the cross is in my entire life, right? I, I need to have this cross orient me and order my steps. I need to know where it is as I have every conversation I'm going to have. I need to know what it means as I enter into every situation as a person who wants to put skin and flesh on this new Israel concept that we would be the embodied people of God. But are you, am I, are we thinking reflectively about it? What does Christ's death mean? We get a clue in verse 25. Those who love their life will lose it. Hate these words. <laughs> They're difficult. And those who hate their life in this world, this world with all of its temptations, with all of its isms, with all of its currents, with all of its trends, those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Here again. Please don't reduce this to physical life or death. I mean, it certainly can be that, and it is that for some people around the world. But I, I, long before you die, Christ has an interest in how you're going to live. Amen there? Pretty good. And eternal life. We've said this before too. You're only getting a slice of it if you reduce that phrase to the innumerable number of days that you will live and not die in eternity. That, that's, I'm not saying that's not true. In fact, hear me say, I think that is true. But there's a whole lot more to this phrase, eternal life, which means in the book of John, living in the full presence of God and what's communicated on the cross, living in the full presence. And I don't mean just when you die. I mean Sunday afternoon on the way home. I mean Monday as you enter the office, go back to the classroom. I mean every moment can be lived in the full presence of God, in the full knowledge of the implications of love. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled because Jesus gets it. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. This is why I'm here. To demonstrate for you that love wins. Maybe we say that too much. I, I mean, it's true, and we should keep saying it because we need to keep reminding ourselves that no matter what rooms we find ourselves in, in that room, if I am there as the embodiment of the resurrected Jesus, then that room is also a potential landing spot for this great theology that is Love wins. But I'm afraid that at times, kind of like the cross has become ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's, it's, it's so everywhere that sometimes it loses its teeth, right? I think sometimes, too, 
we can use phrases like grace. <laughs> so often, we need to keep using it, but there is a danger that we will use it so often that we will sort of mistake our familiarity with it for our understanding of it. Love wins is important. I hope it's not a t-shirt. I hope it's a mantra that walks with you into the next difficult boardroom meeting. I hope it walks into the courtroom with you. I hope it walks into the classroom with you, the operating room with you. I hope it walks in there with you. I hope it grabs you in a way that you're not able to go into a room where there's not this operating thought that love wins. After Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, then there's this thunderous voice from heaven that says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said, no, it must have been an angel that spoke to him. And Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. I already knew what it was going to say. Now is the judgment of this world and now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Driven out. And I, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, and he is talking about a cross, not just a cross, but certainly a cross. When I am lifted up, when I demonstrate for you that I have made myself vulnerable to the isms of the day, and we've been naming them, let's name them again. There's meism, where you are your own God. There is nationalism, where the nation and not God is God. There is consumerism, where the dollar bill, profit margin is God and not God. And by the way, that's not an exhaustive list. They're everywhere. On the cross, Jesus enters into a struggle against all of the isms. Get it? On the cross, love does battle against nationalism. You don't have to like it. You do have to accept that it's true. On the cross, Jesus does do battle with rampant consumerism that only stands, understands the world in one way. Does it make me money or not? On the cross, love does battle with meism. Meism that sometimes takes the form of something that we might think is sort of innocuous, but it goes something like this. Oh man, I just really want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I may or may not join the regularly occurring ritual-making, habit-forming gathering of the people of God because I like wearing pajamas at 11. One of the people that I read <clears throat> and that I have read in preparation for this sermon is a uh, very powerful theologian, the late Gail O'Day, who says this, the power of this world is broken, and yet this same ruler or this world may be readmitted at any time. Whenever faith in God's work in Jesus fails, the ruler is readmitted. Faith in the cross is the world's greatest exorcism. <laughs> faith in the cross is the world's greatest exorcism. And anything else, whether it's flamboyance, whatever it's flamboyance, is powerless. Man, it seems like what she's saying here is 
your faith doesn't believe and doesn't start with the victory won by love in the cross, it doesn't start. Jesus, in being lifted up, draws all people to himself. And yes, these are people like you and like me who are caught in the, trip, in the traps and in the rat races, otherwise known as our current currents. Nationalism, consumerism, self-centeredness, racism. We are drawn to this one who has overcome because in understanding the victory that suffering love has won, we too hope that we too might overcome, that we could change somehow. Now here's the tough part, ready? But overcoming only happens as we choose to believe. Choose to believe in and are identified with the suffering love that wins seen in the cross of Christ. Something about you may need to die. Something about me may need to die. Still, now I can tell you, I have watched something in me die. As I have tried as best I could to be, I'm not saying there's not still work to do, there is, I promise. If you don't believe it, just ask my wife. <laughs> but as I've tried harder and harder to be identified with this suffering love movement that I see embodied in Christ, I have watched as certain things have died and I have watched the promise of Christ come to fruition. There has been fruit that has sprung up. Still more needs to die where John is concerned. I want to ask you too, what else needs to die where you're concerned? Ambition is not a bad thing until it is. Patriotism is not a bad thing until it is. What needs to die where you're concerned? A preoccupation with success, preoccupation with evening the score in all of its forms and definitions and labels, a preoccupation with survival at all costs, the idolization of security, certainty, victory, all of that puts at risk my journey and your journey toward Christ-likeness. Remember again that it was nationalism, consumerism, and meism. <laughs> These are the forces that finally hunted Jesus down and executed him. But Jesus, stubborn Jesus, chose the pathway of love, love for God, but also love for us stubbornly made himself available and vulnerable to these forces, exposed them for what they were and what they are, pretenders to the throne, and ultimately incapable of understanding real power in its greatest form, which is, again, love. God can, in fact, bring new life from death, but are you and I, are we clamoring for new life apart from, apart from uh, taking seriously the death part? I know a lot of people who want new life, they just don't want the dying part. But what are the things that need to die where you're concerned? Vengeance? If you're going to be the wheat that falls into the ground and dies and then produces life-giving fruit for you, but also for those around you, what needs to die? Love persists in the face of suffering and death. Watch now. 
and in so doing, demonstrates a power beyond suffering and death. Identifying with Christ's death sets the stage for identifying with Christ in new life. And this is what we claim in baptism. Oh, whoops. This is what we claim in baptism. Identification with the death of Christ, who stubbornly persists in love even as his death was caused by the current currents of his day. But love prevails in the resurrection, and a new way of being alive is possible, now freed, at least for the moment, from the clutches of the day. Love wins. We are identified with Christ's resurrection and being brought up out of the water. You notice we always bring people up out of the water. And then we are added to the family, the called out people. That's what ecclesia, church, really means, the called out people who have been called out of the rat races of the day and into a strange but good way to be alive, a way of living and a new kingdom now available to everyone because in the cross and in the resurrection and the ascension, Christ is lifted up higher and higher and higher until the entire world can finally get a good glimpse of its true king. Jason wrote for us, Lenten practices every week. Here's one for this week. Week five, Jason has the audacity to suggest that perhaps you should turn the radio off in your car. To turn the radio off for, he says a week, that's crazy talk, right? What about a day? Man, I'd settle for an hour. (laughs) Turn it off for a while so that the voices of nationalism, consumerism, Meism can be dulled at least for a moment, perhaps long enough for you to hear or be heard. What has to die where you are concerned? Dr. Rieger, you can go ahead and come on up. What has to die where you and I are concerned? And have you, have I made the decision to believe in this victory, to accept the gift of Christ's life and death and life as an invitation to love and new life? Christ has done what God in Christ had to do to write this new law on hearts like ours. But you have to say yes. You have to say yes, and then you have to make your life available to the love of God and the death of Jesus. And by the way, those aren't two different things. Boy, I love the words of this song, and we're not going to sing it again. I just want to remind you. The last song that we sang before the scripture song was, Lead Me to the Cross where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me down. I would say to you, I would echo Gail O'Day's sentiments. Faith begins when we recognize what happens here on the cross. So let me ask you, what does the cross mean to you? Have you said yes? the offer of love that comes to you from an unchanging God with an unchanging heart and unending intentions where you're concerned? Have you said yes? 
table is one of the ways and one of the places that we say yes. If you don't already have one of these communion cups, would you please raise your hand? And Mason and Aaron and Kristen, we need some over here. We need some in the back there. The table is one of the times, one of the places, one of the ways in which we say yes. We literally take into our own bodies the death of Christ in the hopes of being shaped by it. So Heavenly Father, bless us now and bless these elements. And God, with them, lead us back to this cross. Give us a clearer and clearer glimpse of what happens here on this cross. Give us a greater understanding of what it means to be people of the cross and of the resurrection. So bless these elements, God, and with them, make us more Christian. It was on the night he was betrayed that our Savior took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, remember me, said Jesus. And so I would invite you, no matter where you are on the belief or faith journey, you're at the right place. To take and break and eat. The same way later he would take the cup and hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, remember me again symbols of death and dying. When you drink this, it is a way, a way to say yes to this love, this God. Friends, take and drink. Heavenly Father, now hear us as we confess that at times we have not taken seriously enough the cross and the price paid to love on that cross, in the silence now, would you pray your own prayer of confession before I hand it over to Jason? perhaps many times have underappreciated what happened on that cross and the love that was demonstrated the stubborn love the unending unchanging love that was demonstrated there and having under respected it we have not allowed that same love to then be that power that orients our lives and we have chased other gods we have pledged allegiance in other places. Forgive us. And now hear this prayer written for all of us. May the Almighty God have mercy on us and forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Spirit keep us in eternal life.